This episode is brought to you by Plate IQ, your accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Plate IQ works with over 20,000 restaurants across the nation, and they work with restaurants all over the spectrum from Michelin star to QSR and everyone in between. So Plate IQ uses OCR and OCR stands for optical character recognition, and it's the technology that recognizes text within a digital image. So like I said, Plate IQ uses OCR in deep machine learning to eliminate the manual data entry from the accounts payable process. So now you can automate the full life cycle of your invoices from the general ledger coding to the bill payment via Play IQ's vendor pay network. Ooh, let's dive deeper into that vendor pay. With Play IQ's vendor pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bills. You can earn cash back on invoices from over 180,000 vendors. And just the fact that you're paying your, your vendors online is a win. I mean, no more paper checks. Woohoo! Am I right? Also, with Plate IQ Vendor Pay, you can see what's due when and schedule payments by check, ACH, or Plate IQ card. And we've got to mention with Plate IQ Vendor Pay, there's no escrow. You don't lose flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. Lastly, I've got to point out that Plate IQ isn't just for the restaurants. It's also for the vendor. Actually, vendors love Plate IQ because for the same reasons you love it, because it makes your life way easier and you want to keep your vendors happy because that will give you leverage in negotiating your terms. Everyone, you and your vendors can filter through a digital filing cabinet and see which vendors have already been scheduled for what payment. Your vendors won't have to hunt you down. That means no more phone tag and everybody loves that. And then lastly, vendors participating in Plate IQ's vendor pay network love it because it shortens days sales outstanding by 25%, aka vendors get paid 25% faster. To learn more, go to plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And if you use that link, you'll save at least 25% off implementation. So a huge part of industry conversation and focus right now is currently centered around the topic of leveraging technology to streamline process and reduce the workload to offset this stupid labor shortage. That's why I'm excited to present to you Hello Slang. We can all agree that missed calls means unhappy customers and unhappy customers means lost business. Let me put it a little bit more directly. When you miss calls, you lose business. Yeah, I know, Eric, but staffing's so expensive and with the cost of labor going up, do I really just want to pay somebody to stand by a phone? Seriously, what's a restaurateur to do? Well, meet HelloSlang.com. Never miss an opportunity due to a missed call again. HelloSlang.com uses AI technology to understand your caller and give them answers immediately, 24-7. HelloSlang.com expedites orders, reservations, shares hours and specials, and answers any custom question. Plus, HelloSlang.com can automatically text callers important information like addresses, directions, menus, anything except Yelp reviews, but let's be honest, who's going to miss that? Am I right? HelloSlang.com works with casual dining all the way up to fine dining concepts across the country. And yes, I know 
there is this concern of losing the human touch. And that is one of my biggest concerns with technology like this too. But one of the reasons why I love helloslane.com so much is because you choose which calls get forwarded to you so you can preserve the human touch. And I should mention it only takes 30 minutes and it can be even faster if you choose to go with the white glove onboarding process. To learn more, go to helloslane.com slash unstoppable for your first month free and no long-term commitment. Again, that's helloslang.com slash unstoppable for your first month free. I don't know about you, but I am always blown away by how quickly menus get destroyed at the end of the night. It's like they're either soaked, soiled, or torn by our patrons. It's almost as if we're sending them into war every night. Well, if we're sending our menus into battle every night, we might as well send them in equipped with the same materials the U.S. Navy SEALs use. That's right. Terra Slate, the creators of the world's most durable paper, created the industry-recognized waterproof menus by using the same exact materials they developed for the U.S. Navy SEALs. Their menus are not only 100% waterproof, but they are also rip-proof, which means you can have a better-looking menu that lasts. Now, I know a few of you are listening to this thinking to yourselves, who needs indestructible paper when I've got these fancy laminating machines and uh, these menu jackets with a plastic sheet that goes over the menu to, to protect it? Well, yeah, okay, maybe those tools help you keep your menu looking lively longer, but not that much longer if we're being honest. Am I right? And how much time and money are you wasting relaminating or rejiggering slash replacing those menus after they do eventually get worn out? I'm telling you, there is no better or easier option out there than TerraSlate. TerraSlate menus have been saving money for restaurant owners and managers in tens of thousands of restaurants around the world since 2014. Each menu is self-sanitizing as TerraSlate's proprietary antimicrobial nano coating is added to each one and get this for free on every menu order forever. Ordering the world's most durable menus is easy. When you're done with your menu, when it's time to roll out a new menu, just recycle the old ones and head to www.terraslate.com. It's that simple. America, 1965. A tumultuous year. Lyndon B. Johnson is sworn in as President of the United States on January 20th. On February 21st, Malcolm X is assassinated in Manhattan. March 2nd saw the premiere of The Sound of Music at the Rivoli Theater in New York City. Later, when spring had fully bloomed throughout the nation, 40 men burned their draft cards at the University of California, Berkeley, in defiance of the Vietnam War. 70 days later, Lyndon Johnson announces his order to increase the number of drafted soldiers in Vietnam to double monthly, from 17 to 35,000. On August 15th, the Beatles performed the first ever stadium rock concert at Shea Field. Five days later, eight miles away, across the East River, Lawrence Parker is born. 
Lawrence Parker, known today as KRS-One, is a rapper and hip-hop artist. Soon after entering the world as a babe, he grew up and became homeless, sleeping in Prospect Park and eating one meal every 48 hours. He came up through the shelter system, rapping and making a name for himself until he met a social worker who eventually became his DJ. It's a strange story, but one for another time. Right now, I want to talk about 16 words KRS-One once said. If hip-hop has the ability to corrupt young minds, it also has the ability to uplift them. Welcome to the second episode of the story of Seven North. Our hero, our protagonist, Doug York, is an example of hip-hop uplifting a young mind. At the end of episode one, I was delivered a bomb. Boom went the information that Doug York, humble coffee shop owner with less than a dollar and a dream, was once a successful rapper. We are here today to explore the idea that navigating the world of hip hop helped Doug open his coffee shop. How could the skills and experience gained from emceeing and DJing aid Doug in the hospitality industry? Come with me and let's find out. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to the story of Seven North. I am your host, Jared Parisi, and we are about to dive into the past, Doug's past. Before we do that, though, I think it's time we set the stage. I need to give you some context and a sense of setting. Seven North Coffee Co. can be found in Exeter, New Hampshire. It is tucked into the bottom floor of a big white house. It looks like a house from the outside. The second floor holds an apartment. The building is bright and inviting. There is a big window next to the entrance which displays hours and the menu. The sign hangs above the door and announces the name of the business and the fact that a walk-up window exists in the back. Inside is Doug. He is alone except for his patrons. He doesn't even know that I am here. At 11.26 this morning, I was in my car soaking in this scene which I have just described. I sat there wondering what history this building has seen. How old is it? Has it always housed a business? Has it seen love or hate? Certainly both. But I wonder which more often. Has it been witness to racism, terrorism, patriotism, fatalism, veganism, vandalism, sodomy, alchemy, poetry, soliloquy, civility, in addition to Doug now pouring coffee? But the sun, so bright now. We are nearing midday. I think back now to a few months ago when I sat down in this very building and interviewed Doug all about his past, his passion project previous to Seven North. It was still deep winter then, and it was getting dark, the sun having long ago forgotten about us. Let me tell you a story about Doug the Rapper. Are there any Star Wars fans out there listening to this? Who am I kidding? Does Han Solo wear goofy-looking puddle jumpers up to his knees? If Doug is Anakin, then episode one of the story of Seven North was the OG trilogy, chronicling the destiny of Darth Vader. And this episode is the prequels. 
What of Vader's past? Was he born brooding, vengeful? No, he started out as something else entirely. Doug was also not always a restaurateur. How did Doug the entrepreneur go from successful rapper to a coffee shop owner? Well, in order to find out, we have to go all the way back to New Jersey, 1989. There was definitely a time that hip hop did not exist in my life. And that's odd because it feels like hip hop has always existed. I grew up in Exeter in New Hampshire, but part of my family lived in New Jersey. So in the summertime, I would go down there and I would stay at my grandmother's house. That's when I first heard hip hop, but it wasn't music. It wasn't like on a tape. My first memory of, I guess you would call it hip hop, was when I was in my grandmother's house. I was laying in on her pullout couch in her living room. She lived in an apartment building. It was right out, the, the front steps were right outside the window. And it was dark in the room, but I was still awake. And outside were these two young girls. I don't even know how old they were because I couldn't see them. I could only hear them. My guess is they were probably teenagers and they were rapping. And it was all just acapella. There was no music. I was fascinated by it. I didn't know what it was, but I was like, this is amazing. That was the first time I had ever heard somebody rap, and I still didn't know what hip-hop was. And in my mind, I don't remember if it was like, true or not, but in my mind, I just remember it being awesome. I was like, yeah, these girls are rapping, and it's awesome. But I didn't know what like rap was. Can you hear it? That smile. When Doug says the word awesome, he is smiling. He is remembering how that moment made him feel. What is your passion? Besides the other people in your life, what do you love most? And do you remember when you first experienced it? Like Doug, I very much enjoy hip-hop and rap music, but I'm passionate about science fiction literature. I have a story similar to Doug's. It's the story of a moment. When I was 18, I watched the film 2001 A Space Odyssey for the very first time, and within minutes of witnessing the star child look dispassionately upon the blue globe of Earth, I begged my only friend with a car to drive me to the library so I could borrow the novel. I have never made my love for science fiction into a job or a career, but 13 years after seeing 2001 and reading the novel upon which it is based, I am hosting a podcast all about that author's bibliography. I am smiling. Can you hear it? But New Jersey is not the only place to discover a passion. At a summer camp in Maine, a fellow camper introduced Doug to a rap group that was making waves at the time. Enter the Wu-Tang Clan. I heard that, and that literally changed everything for me. That was when I was like, I need to do this. I need to be a part of whatever this is. In addition to acapella under streetlights in New Jersey, the boom bap slap and bang of the Wu-Tang Clan, Doug also witnessed the release of the 1992 film Juice. Main character, the lead in that movie is a DJ. And I saw him DJing. And the intro, the beginning of the movie, opens with him making a mixtape and I was infatuated 
with him DJing and turntables and scratching. And I was like, I need to do this. At this point in the early 90s, a passion had been firmly implanted in a young Doug York. And here we arrive at a lesson we can learn from his story. Many successful chefs and restaurateurs that we interview on the Restaurant Unstoppable podcast cite travel as a distinct benefit to becoming a well-rounded restaurant industry professional. Doug had to leave New Hampshire to be exposed to an art form that he eventually adopted and loved. When Doug was a kid, rap music was urban. It was something for the inner cities of New York and Los Angeles, two places that are the opposite of Exeter, New Hampshire. People would often tell Doug that merely listening to hip-hop in the 90s in rural New Hampshire was a mistake and ill-advised. Apparently, those people also shy away from folk music because the times are always a-changing. Hip-hop was not popular. You got made fun of a lot. Like, what are you doing listening to hip-hop music? You live in New Hampshire. We got that a lot. And we didn't care because it's what connected all of us. So the struggle wasn't in so much what we were doing because we loved what we were doing. The struggle was searching for like minds, trying to defend ourselves and our passion and getting into physical fights with people over this music that we loved. When Doug was around 15 years old, he and his friends managed to score their very own radio show at Phillips Exeter Academy. PEA is a private school in Exeter and considered one of the best and most prestigious in the world. How does a hip-hop-obsessed townie get a weekly spot on a private high school radio station? Take it away, Doug. We knew one person who was older than us who was into hip-hop and had a radio show. This group of kids who liked hip-hop music, we all knew each other because there were so few of us. And so we all connected through this mutual love for hip-hop. So we would occasionally go to their show and be like guests on their show we would rap you know freestyle on their show and it was great this woman i don't even remember her name she might have thought that like we went there because it was so rare for kids who didn't go to school there to be there and we weren't causing trouble you know we were just having a show and so then when we went to her with you had to fill out a little piece of paper that said like what the name of the show was going to be who you were the music you were going to play and we just brought it to her, and she agreed to do it. Like, I, I don't remember much. It was just like, you know, <laughs> shaky hands, sweaty palms, like handing over this piece of paper, like, are you going to let us do this? And then it's like, yeah, okay, here you go. Shaky hands and sweaty palms. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like something most entrepreneurs know very well. Sounds like that time Doug walked into a bank and handed his business plan to an unsympathetic person who held sway over the future of Doug's passion. So at the age of 15, Doug had already received a crash course in business ownership. And how did it feel when you got that opportunity? It felt amazing. After nothing but negativity from his environment and community about his love for hip-hop music, Young Doug has now felt victory, fulfillment. Every business owner has a hundred dark and frigid failures before success blooms upon the horizon and lights up their world with warmth and purpose. 
Doug's rap radio show lasted all four years of high school, and Doug headed off to college in New York City. But the hands of hip-hop still gripped our young protagonist. Instead of going to class, or to parties for that matter, Doug was busy writing. He was writing what would eventually become the first album as a part of the rap group Granite State. Granite State was comprised of Doug and his friend Brian, known as Bug Out in the hip-hop world. You might still be wondering what all this hip-hop stuff has to do with opening a coffee shop during a pandemic with no barista experience. I'm gonna let Doug ponder this for a moment. The connection, I think, is that I've never been afraid to do something that feels a little bit scary. I'm almost drawn to the harder thing. Being a part of hip-hop, making hip-hop music in the 90s was the harder thing because nobody did it. Making music when I could have just been going to school and taking a bus six hours one way every weekend was the harder thing when I could have just been like partying at school or just going to class. So I think if there's any connection, it's that I've never shied away from doing the difficult thing especially when I want something bad enough. And at that time, I wanted to make an album more than anything. And I liked where it was going. That six-hour bus ride Doug is talking about there refers to his time traveling between Exeter, New Hampshire, and New York City in order to make music. Have you ever sat on a bus for six hours? It is not fun have you ever sifted through 10 hours of interview audio searching for something worth saving something worth publishing it is also not fun but like young doug york i too have a vision i appear clairvoyant able to see the future of this podcast and how i shall mold it doug was also feeling premonitory seeing in his hands not two beers and a blunt but two turntables and a microphone Before they released their first album, Granite State performed a live show at the Ioka, an old, iconic theater in downtown Exeter. We did two shows at the Ioka here in Exeter and sold out both of them. And these were, you know, 500 seats. You know, we didn't have an album out. For the first show, we didn't have an album out. And so we knew that that there was something there. And so that was the motivating force for us to keep working on the album. So we worked on it through that winter. The next spring, we released the album, did another show at the Ioka and sold that one out. And it just felt like this momentum. We started doing shows everywhere. So Doug made it. Against all odds, Doug has become a rapper. He is an in-demand working artist. He is selling out Iokas, filling up marquee space all over New England. It's interesting now to hear the Doug of a few months ago reflect on the feelings of the Doug of 15 years ago. Even when we did those shows at the Ioka, I never felt like it was... I never felt like I had anything to do with it which is a weird place to be. It's like, these people are here to see you, but I've never felt like that. I've always felt outside of it. Like, oh, these people have nothing else to do, so they came to a show tonight. That's how my mind made it. So in having this coffee shop, I don't feel like it's about me. It's about providing something for the community. 
when I say there's something there, it's almost reinforcing this belief in I'm on the right track. And so with this coffee shop, when people are showing up, I feel like as it has nothing. They don't care about me. They care about getting a coffee, you know. But when they show up, I feel like okay, there's something there. I'm on the right track. So every day it's like a little mini Ioka every time somebody walks in. You're 100% right. It's it's I say to myself, I just got to show up. I got to show up. I got to put on a good show, which is whack. It, like to me that's a lame thing. Like it's a lame reference, but it's the same idea. You know, you're putting on you're creating an experience for people every yeah. single day. You know, and you want them to have a certain experience, even if they're just coming in to grab a cup of coffee before they go to work, or they're coming in to do some work on the computer. You want to create a particular experience for them. That is what we were doing at shows when we were performing. Yeah. That's what I feel like I'm doing here. What Doug is talking about here is the similarities between theater and a restaurant. And abundant those similarities are. Every time a theater performance hits a beat, a near identical beat is hit at the restaurant across the street from the box office. People in the restaurant industry are putting on a show for their guests. You could have the greatest memory in the world, recalling the precise orders of a 10 top on a busy Friday night. But if you miss a beat, if you fuck up the script, if you fail to act on cue, if you fail to perform, your guests will be left wanting. Have you ever heard the term dinner and a show? The best restaurants provide both within a single meal. We mustn't forget about our third yet essential wheel, Eric Cacciatore, host of the Restaurant Unstoppable podcast. Eric recently interviewed Leo Holtzman, co-founder of SoCal Cantina in Miami. Leo began his career as a magician, and here he and Eric reflect on how conducting a magic show helps him pull off a memorable dinner service. The idea was to do a magic and cocktail show, so I was already kind of incorporating it, trying to differentiate myself and offer like a different experience where I would, you know, the show was I would do like 10 minutes of magic, make a really cool cocktail and tell a story about that and tie that in. And it was basically, you know, a 40 minute show with three drinks in between. The, the big lesson up to this point, what is your unique selling proposition? What unique thing do you bring to the table that you can lean into to create a unique experience for your, your end user, right? Yeah. And for you to combine your, your skills with magic and to incorporate that into your, your talent for creating cocktails, you're instantly just like a powerhouse. Like, cause no, like very few people can compete with that. I talked to my girlfriend about this a while ago and it was, she was basically like, you know, you doing magic, even though you don't necessarily have it in like, you don't perform all the time anymore. A lot of the way that you, the thought process of creating a trick and an act, like all the, the, you know, the inner workings of it, it's reflected in a lot of the systems that we do in our restaurant, which, you know, allow us for a lot more efficient and sometimes like, you know, the magic of service, you know, like yeah. people don't realize they're like, how the hell did I get these four complicated cocktails on my table in two minutes? Or how did my plate just disappear in front of me? I didn't even, yeah. like, you know, like just like being, you know, just like being able to swoop in and not be noticed and just like create that seamless experience, right? Exactly. Same as much as you can. Yeah, right. Eric Cacciatore has conducted over 800 interviews for the Restaurant Unstoppable podcast. He is familiar with the struggles of this business. He is also keen at recognizing the unexpected benefits of a multi-interest industry. 
individual. You, dear listener, and I as well. We are not defined by one thing. We are all mixtures of different successes and failures, triumphs and tragedy. Eric knows this well, but does Doug? I want to ask him, hey, Doug, are you aware of how beneficial your time as a rapper was to what you are doing today, as unrelated as they may seem at first glance? 100% because you have to show up and do the same thing every single day. And you have to be okay with doing the same thing every single day. And I feel fortunate that I'm meticulous enough. I'm in my comfort zone doing the same thing every single day. Some people, that will drive them crazy because it's too monotonous. For me, it's Groundhog Day in a good way because I'm Bill Murray saying, okay, how can I change things given that it's going to be the exact same thing every day? Also, how can I master what I'm doing given these parameters? I know a drink is made a very particular way. How can I master how that drink is made? I love that. Have you mastered anything yet? No. I, I'm not even I'm not even close. I know I'm I'm getting I'm on my way. Did you master being a hip hop artist? No, it was so elusive. Hip hop music and making music and performing felt so elusive to me. It felt like no matter what I was doing, I was not gaining traction, or I just wasn't opening myself up to seeing the small gains that we were making. But this, I felt totally capable of doing on my own and I think it was because of the experience that I had with music the experience I had with music you know that word experience it's an interesting one you often hear it in reference to job interviews how am I supposed to get experience if I need experience to get experience confusing right well such is the modern world Unless your career does not involve any interaction with other people, emotional intelligence and its mastery is your most valuable asset. Become a person of value to make it in the restaurant industry. The best way to do this is to mine your past experiences for the lessons and the skills that combine to make the unique amalgamy that is you. The next time you find yourself in a job interview and the guy on the other side of the desk asks if you have any experience, you look him right in the eye and say, look at me, jefe, I'm alive. In 2016, I went on tour with a local New Hampshire band all the way down to Nashville, Tennessee. I followed them, camera at the ready, creating a feature-length documentary all about the tour. One thing I learned is that unknown bands play shows to empty rooms. It is a fact. Every musician, no matter their level of success or fame, knows what this is like. Doug knows what this is like. This piece of Doug's past helps him greatly as a restaurateur. There is nothing more terrifying to a restaurant owner than an empty dining room. I understand, right? I mean, you spend years planning and building your dream restaurant. You have the best ideas for fast service, the greatest gimmick for creating repeat guests, the most amazing guacamole recipe anyone has ever tried. And yet, on day one... Many successful restaurants have days like this. You need to get used to it. If you're already used to it, you are one step ahead. 
at that time, we didn't realize that, yeah, it is a job. <laughs> you know, right, you right. want to be an artist. You want to be a musician. You wake up every day and you make music. It's a job. You don't wait until you're inspired. You don't wait until you have free time. You wake up every day and you make music. These are all the lessons that I learned from making music and from all the things I did wrong. Those are the blessings. Going through that experience was a blessing because it's enabled me to wake up every day, show up every day, and do what I got to do. Performing, touring, all those things were blessings. We would show up at some places and there'd be five people there and we had to perform like there were 500. And we wanted to and we enjoyed it, even though we called it things like practice night or whatever. I take those lessons with me here because I show up the same every single day, no matter how many people walk through the door. And if I didn't have those experiences touring, then I might be a little bit more discouraged here on a slower day. I never met the Doug of 25 years ago when he would ask his friends about what fantastic futures they could still build for themselves. And yet, sometimes I feel as though that 15-year-old kid has reared his head and commandeered Doug's eyes to look straight at me. Even as Doug speaks, I hear somewhere in the room a voice telling me, I'm still in here and I'm still hungry. Doug mentioned that he sees his failures as blessings. Emotionally intelligent people can see failure this way. It's a soulful way to view a miscalculation. And here we come to the point where hip-hop and hospitality yarns separate. I was so interested to hear about Doug's experience with trying to get signed by a record label. We shopped our single to a bunch of labels and they all passed we just got discouraged to the point where it was like fuck this like instead instead of saying fuck them we're gonna do it on our own we said fuck this it's just not working and i wish that we had said fuck them we're gonna do it on our own because it was right on the precipice of diy we were coming from the era where you we were actually doing diy and didn't even know it but we always thought we need to do this. This is the step we got to take so we can get signed. And then when we didn't get signed, we're like, fuck, it's not working. We should have, I wish we had said, we're going we're gonna to double down on doing it ourselves. Okay, so it sounds like, to me, record labels saying no to your single is the equivalent of a pandemic. Hmm. In that, then you said you listened to the pandemic, or in that case, the naysayers, and you said, "Well, then we can't do this." Whereas now, you you had this idea for this coffee shop, you believed in it, you wanted to make it, and then a pandemic happened, and instead of saying "fuck this, it's not going to work," yeah, you said "fuck the pandemic, I'm going to make it work." I've find it amazing that you like, connected that I think there is something to be said. The no that Doug received from record labels was a deep cutter. This was the first major door beyond which lay something Doug desired deeply to be shut in his face. He recoiled from the rejection, but now he looks back with regret and sees that rather than recoil, he should have re-upped. He should have found another door. But Granite State had been going for some time now, years in fact, 
and after the third album was released and Doug found himself on tour to support that album totally alone, Granite State called it quits. By this time, Doug was married with a child, and he was doing what no dad ever wants to do. It was on that tour. So going back to these aha moments that you don't know that you're going through at the time, but when you look back, it's like, yeah, that was definitely it. I was outside a hotel in the parking lot with my daughter on FaceTime for her third birthday. And I wasn't there for her third birthday because I was in the middle of maybe Connecticut. I was like, yeah, this is awful. I'm sitting here doing shows for nobody. I'm not at my daughter's third birthday. And I made a commitment to myself after I got off the phone there that I'll never miss her birthday. And now I have two. I'll never miss their birthdays again. So then when it was the end of that tour, I was driving home from, I think it was Bridgeport, and it was the middle of the night. And I was just like, I'm done. And I felt good about it. It wasn't like a resentful done. It wasn't like, I'm pissed off, I'm angry, I'm done. It was like, that was all I needed to do. You know, that that chapter is, is done. Notice Doug's use of the word chapter. He did not say book. The book of Doug continues. When flipping the page between chapters in a book, you are not starting over. You are transitioning. The author taught you something about the characters and the story and the conflict, and without them, the next chapter would make no sense at all. And now we begin to bridge this gap, the gap between rap and the tap, between musician and barista, working artist to working restaurateur. As the narrator of this podcast, I too need to bridge the gap. When Doug and I sat down for the Granite State interview on that cold winter night, I did not see myself as an engineer. I was asking questions, not laying brick. But now I see, as you should too, dear listener, that I was building a bridge. A life of constantly pushing against people who tell you no is the perfect prerequisite for a career in the restaurant industry. No. Your painstakingly curated menu is not good enough for me, and I want to add a modifier. No, that pizza is not well done enough. Could you cook it a little more, even though you've already cut it? No, that burger is not pink enough. Throw it away and make me another one. No, your 10th hour of work today was not your best, and you do not deserve a tip above 5%. These are the realities of the business. It is an industry of challenge, of scraping by, of problem solving. The profit margins of the most successful restaurants in the world would baffle you. The amount of work required to foster a successful restaurant is equal to the orbit of Neptune, while your profit margins hang out somewhere around Mercury. But as I mentioned in episode one, you cannot get into this industry for money. You need to love what you are doing. And to really feel fulfilled, you need to know why you are doing it. And you cannot lose sight of your why. So another thing that I took, that I take from music and attribute to this is I lost sight of the bigger goal. And now I'm making sure I'm focused on the goal. And that goal is that I'm, I'm serving a bigger purpose than just coffee where I want to have a positive effect on people's lives, no matter who shows up. 
and my hope is to reach as many people as possible. When I was making music, I wanted to have a f- positive effect on as many people's lives as possible. And people, when people weren't showing up, I lost sight of that bigger goal instead of focusing. So my mantra became afterwards, don't worry about the people who aren't there. Focus on the people who are there. And that's something that I stress to a lot of people. And I've been saying that for years. It's kind of becoming like a buzzword phrase now. But... I've said it for years. It's not about the people who aren't here. It's about the people who are. And if you focus on those people and you deliver for those people, more people will come. And now we must go deeper and reflect on why we are doing this. We meaning all of us, everyone in the world. This meaning life. What we do when we wake up in the morning and why? To what end? Well, death is the end, right? But between now, right now, this moment, and your eventual end, what are you doing, and why are you doing it? Doug quit touring and making music because that hole had been filled. He had been satiated. But now, new hungers arise, such as the hunger of little mouths. Doug has a family. He has a wife and two daughters. They depend on him, not just for money, but for love, for cohesion, for interdependence, and support. At this point, While interviewing Doug about his rap career, I had never met his family. Up to that point, I had only ever heard that Doug works every single day at the coffee shop. His wife works a full-time job at the hospital. And prior to this interview, I had spoken with Doug's early mentors, and they both echoed the same major concern for Doug's business. He needs to find balance. One thing we talked about briefly in episode one, and we'll explore much more fully in episode three, is the idea of work-life balance. Almost every new business owner struggles to achieve any amount of balance between raising a business and raising a family. It is possible, but it is hard. This was never more clear to me than when, at the end of our two-hour interview, Doug's phone began to vibrate. Hold on. We can, you, we can wrap up. After a slightly tense conversation with his wife, Doug returned to the microphone to dish on the real meaning of work-life balance. Um, That's how part, that's how part of it, you know, like that's, that's the balancing act. This is what I got to do with my whole life, you know, is balance between these things. And that's what I had done my whole life is balance between these things. And I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know how to balance, spin all the plates properly. And so one had to fall, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just, that's how, how this thing goes. And it's not a sustainable enough career. It's not a sustainable enough profession to be able to do both properly. Right. So, so one <laughs> final question would be, do you, how is it different now? I think there's a lot of psychology that goes into this, but now it's because this looks more like a job that you do every day that is considered more acceptable in society. If I if I said to everybody, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to make music every day and I'm not going to do anything else, people are going to be like, well, how are you going to make money? You know, what are you going to do for a job? And you say, no, that is my job. Well, the fucked up thing is that... Sorry, hold on. That was my brother. I'm not going to answer that. The fucked well, up thing is that you're kicking your own ass doing this. Well, here's here's the thing. It is socially acceptable 
to do what I'm doing now, to open and run a business, even if you're not making money, it's still more socially acceptable than being a musician who's not making money. So I can wake up every day and say, I'm going to work. And people are like, all right. But if I were to wake up every day and say, I'm going to make music, people are like, well, what are you going to do for work? So the difference now is this looks like a job. That's it. That's it. That's the, but that's not why you're doing it, right? No. Okay. But I'm saying that's the difference between... So it makes it easier, I guess? And, 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 and you know, knock on wood, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making money, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. So... Uh, this thing generates money on a daily basis, yes, whereas hip-hop music does not. Yeah. So, um, that's why it's a little bit easier, but it's still not easy. And, uh, do you think it's easy for any restaurant owner? No. And I think their marriages fall apart and all this shit, you know, and their lives fall apart. And I'm hoping and praying that that doesn't happen in this case. And I think that I've built a strong enough foundation where it won't, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to have like fights and I'm going to have to deal with this now, you know? Um, and now I have to sacrifice now. Like I'm not going to do things that I'm going to, that I should be doing tonight so I can get home to eat dinner with my family. Um, but that's, I've grown more accustomed to that. Um, and I'm used to it. And my wife has a very, uh, stressful and demanding job where she's out late. So there's a little bit of forgiveness there. Um, and, but I'd, I, I want to be doing this. And I know that, like, I don't find my story all that interesting. But when I listen to the connections that you make, I say to myself, man, like, yeah, I think, like, there's something there. Like, you're seeing what I'm not seeing because I'm too close. Yeah. You know? And so my hope is that by you taking all this clay and making those connections being able to put together you know something a little bit more coherent because to me it's a it's a my past is like a scrambled mess you know that's i'm still trying to figure out what it all means On the next episode of The Story of Seven North, we are talking to Doug's early mentors, two business owners who saw the potential in Doug's future and decided to invest in it. Find out what these people saw in Doug York and what warnings they felt needed to be imparted upon our budding entrepreneur. Next time on The Story of Seven North.